everyone. Welcome back to Here Apologetics. As always, we're to you with your support on Patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Um, Doug Rotice. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's also a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society and the Society of Christian Philosophers. He's done a lot of work in Christian philosophy and philosophy of religion and so much fun stuff. Uh, Dr. Grodice, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Zach. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so just to start off, uh, if there, you could just give a brief introduction for people who maybe don't know who you are, talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do. Yes, I am professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. I've been there since 1993, and I've also written a number of books. The most recent one is one we'll be talking about today called Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. My real passion is to take the Christian message to the world and to build up the church. Mm, that's great. So I think to start off, um, I was just reading your uh, your memoir, kind of walking through twilight. It's a really um, powerful book, talking about kind of like your journey and going through your um, your wife's battle with dementia and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about just the basics of like the story and kind of like the inspiration behind the book? Yes. Well, my first wife, Rebecca Morell Grothuis was a very brilliant woman. She was a writer and editor. She edited all my books up until my apologetics textbook, Christian Apologetics. And after she finished editing that, she couldn't edit anymore. So it was a very sad journey. She had a rare form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia. And someone asked me to write a, an article on our journey the editor of Christianity Today at the time. And at first I said, I really don't think I want to. But then I went back to my office and wrote the article fairly quickly. And that article got more responses than anything I had ever written in like 40 years. And after the article was published, I had three different book publishers that were interested in me writing a book for them. So I went with InterVarsity. And my goal was to help people learn how to suffer well when they needed to suffer. So it's a lament, and a lament is a painful cry to God for help, for wisdom. We see a lot of lament in the scripture. Maybe 60 psalms are psalms of lament. So it's a very personal book, but I didn't write it really for therapeutic purposes. I didn't really write it to express myself per se, but to help people learn how to navigate suffering and particularly the suffering that comes from dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that's writing the, reading the book, it seemed so um, personal. Like it was really just like a lament. It wasn't trying to like fluff something up and make it like sound like nice and pretty. And there was a happy ending. It was just very, very honest. Um, so it's like through like dealing with like um, your wife going through uh, dementia and caring for her and just like dealing with this like emotional problem of evil and like lamenting just through the grief. Like what, what did that look like? And obviously a long journey that you wrote a book about, but like what, what is that journey? What has it been like for you? Well, I should say that the book came out in late 2017 and Rebecca passed away in July of 2018. Mm. Uh, she was 
moving in that direction when I wrote the book, but she had not passed away when the book came out. Mm. It was a very uh, gut-wrenching, grueling experience. I don't try to tone that down at all in the book. And I think I'm in good company because some of the Psalms of Lament are very gritty and very gutsy, if you will. The psalmists are disappointed with God. Sometimes they're even angry with God. But they are calling out to God. They're not turning away. I think it's better to be angry with God than try to turn away and pretend like he's not there. So uh, I'm a philosopher. So as Becky and I would go through these situations, I would be thinking of a lot of philosophical and theological issues. Uh, one thing is to see a brilliant mind come apart. And I have a chapter in the book called It's Eerie. And it's a very uh, disconcerting, eerie situation to see someone's mind stop functioning properly and how it malfunctions and the strange things that can happen. Uh, like uh, Becky, for a while, could tie her shoes perfectly. It was like automatic behavior, but she would put uh, her shoes on the wrong feet. It's just odd the way the mind works when it breaks down. And it was certainly not a matter of clinical observation for me. It was very painful, but it made me think about how many systems and how many capacities have to be in place within a person to successfully navigate through life because I saw my wife losing those capacities. And I think at my best, it made me thankful that I could still put on my shoes, I could still drive, I could still operate a keyboard and a computer and so on when Becky was losing that. But certainly uh, prayer was very important. The book of Ecclesiastes was a lifesaver for me. I've been reading it really my entire Christian life, probably have read that book more than any other book in the Bible. And it gave me a vantage point. In fact, when I found out that Becky had dementia, I really gave up on her being healed. She had been chronically ill for many years, and we tried all kinds of alternative remedies, prayer, fasting, having people with the gift of healing come over, lay hands on her. And she never really got better. And when I found out she had a terminal case of dementia, pretty quickly, I... I gave up on her being healed. And I didn't feel any guilt about that because there's a passage in Ecclesiastes that says there's a time to give up. And so I continued to pray for her and to pray for myself. And occasionally I would pray that God would supernaturally heal her. But there was a shift in my approach to life at that point. I was praying more for her to be comforted, for me to care for her well. Uh, that we could keep her home until the very end, which we were able to do, and so on. So it was a, a long and very difficult journey. Another thing that was significant to help me, and I have a chapter in the book on it, is finding areas of life that give meaning and significance apart from the suffering that you are going through. And I call that chapter Escape into Meaning. And I don't mean be escapist as denying your responsibility or abandoning your post. 
by no means, but I would make sure Be Becky was taken care of, but I would continue to go to art museums and jazz concerts and things and really enjoy those rich areas of life as a gift from God. Uh, and for a time, be able to not think about our sad situation. And there's even a text in the book of Ecclesiastes that encouraged me in that. I won't read it, but it's Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20, which basically says that the person who is enjoying life uh, is receiving a gift from God and they don't worry about the meaning of everything all the time. <laughs> As my little paraphrase, it's not very good. But there's nothing wrong if you're taking care of your spouse uh, who's in a very sad and depressing situation to go out with your friends and take in a good jazz concert and really enjoy that concert. And I did that with music and with art museums. And I continued to, to teach and write and so on. So I, in that chapter, I tried to navigate the distinction between escaping your responsibility, being irresponsible, and redirecting your consciousness to things for which you can give thanks and really enter into in a joyful way. That was extremely significant for me. Mm. One thing that you talked about was this idea of like lamenting. And I think that in like Christian culture, we can often just kind of assume that like, we can't like doubt God, we can't question God, we just kind of have to like trust him, like he's God. Um, but as you talk about like in the in Ecclesiastes or the Psalms, like lamenting can look um, a lot more complex than that. So like, what's kind of like the theology of like lamenting that you kind of developed and kind of saw as you like progressed in your journey kind of going through the struggle? Right. Well, I have done quite a bit of thinking about lament even before we found out Becky had dementia. So I think God was preparing me for that. But I realized that we need to offer our full personality to God, our joys, our fears, our pain, our hopes, and not try to put up a nice religious front for God. So while God is worthy of, of praise and worship, and we should be thankful before God. There are times when the way God rules the world doesn't please us very much. And you find that in the Psalms. Like, for example, Psalm 88 is by a man called Heman the Ezrahite, the Ezrahite, I think it is. And he's chronically ill. And the end of that Psalm, he says, darkness is my closest friend. There's no resolution in that psalm and also there's a psalm of david psalm 39 that has no resolution either david basically says lord please leave me alone you're making my life miserable and that's a fairly accurate paraphrase for what he says and you think wait a minute this is king david the great psalmist the man after god's own heart and he ends one of his psalms like that and then you have heman the ezraite who says darkness is my closest friend but they were talking to God, they were praying. And this is in Holy Scripture. Jesus himself gives the ultimate lament, dying for our sins on the cross, when he says, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we know that if Christ himself can lament while experiencing the ultimate suffering for the redemption of the world, then suffering and lament have meaning. Mm. And I don't have to pretend that life is better than it is. 
In fact, I think it's virtuous to lament in the right way. Because if something wonderful has been taken away, like my wife's intelligence, I think it's worth lamenting. It's worth grieving over. It's not like dropping a tissue out of your pocket and you can't use the tissue anymore. Well, what, what does that matter? That's no big deal. But great losses require some really heartfelt grieving. And I think in our culture, we typically say, well, let's get on with life. Let's move on. Americans always want to move. Uh, get over it. Uh, reinvent yourself, etc. But great losses require some significant grieving. And I found lament is the best way to grieve. And it's not always the time to lament, but there are seasons, like Ecclesiastes 3 says, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. And there are other times that are specified there. Now, in my life right now, uh, I certainly miss my departed wife every day, but God has brought Kathleen into my life. I've been remarried now for two years. And it's a much lighter, happier, more joyful season. So it's really more a time to dance now than it is a time to mourn. But given all the mourning that I've been through, this has given me some pretty good sensitivity for people suffering. So I try to listen and be concerned and pray and offer help to people who are, are suffering, especially very profound suffering, like um, having a spouse with dementia or uh, losing a spouse or losing a child or something like that. I try to um, listen carefully to the pain and try to offer a word that will help encourage. And that's not always, it's not even usually trying to cheer people up. In fact, it can be a mistake to try to cheer people up when they're very deeply into suffering because you're not recognizing the situation they're in. And you're probably trying to rush along a process that really can't be rushed along. Right. So one thing that I wonder about is with um, people going suffering at the moment, um, it's obviously a very like, challenging like thing to go through for so for someone who uh, maybe is experienced like a serious like condition themselves or really close to someone that does um, kind of like the, the journey you went through. Like, what do you recommend um, for them as they kind of like go through this journey and try to make sense of uh, the reality that they live in? Well, people suffer differently, but we all have certain things in common because we're all made in God's image, and we live in this broken world of groaning, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. We certainly need the church, and I speak in my book of how one of our ministers at my church would bring communion over to Becky when she could, and how significant that was, because people who are very ill often feel alienated from everyone there they spend so much time alone they can't go out they lose a lot of their autonomy their agency and so they need fellowship in various ways uh, my book is about the healthy one ministering to the sick one rebecca was the sick one and i was the healthy one but 
there are different forms of suffering, but we all need the church. We need the prayers of other Christians. We need fellowship. We should be as involved with the church as we possibly can because uh, the story of redemption is a story we need to find ourselves in. We need to live in and live out of that story, that truth that God has come to redeem us and through the greatest suffering can come the greatest um, redemption. We see the crucifixion ultimately leading to the resurrection, but you can't avoid uh, the suffering in this world. One day there will be no suffering and only blessing, but that day is not yet with us. Uh, what would you say for someone who maybe uh, is on the outside kind of seeing someone um, maybe going through suffering or knows someone that is? I remember um, just a few days ago was the birthday of someone that was kind of close to me that I knew who passed away in a car crash. He was only like 18 at the time. Um, and I just remember thinking about like his mother um, and like the, what the family goes through like every year. Um, so for like someone on the outside trying to help someone that's kind of like in the thick of like a, a tragic thing like dementia or something like what can they do on the outside to help um in the journey mm -hmm. well one key thing is to listen and not try to fix things necessarily certainly give all the practical help that someone needs when people are taking care of a loved one who's very ill they often need someone to shop for them or maybe someone to come in and clean up the house or someone to sit with their loved one. So practical help is invaluable. And make sure to not overcommit, uh, because through Becky and my journey, a lot of people made some grand promises as to how they would help us, and they didn't. Now that was a minority. We had many deeply kind, helpful, loving people. But I think some people feel this great rush of emotion to help and they sometimes promise too much or they promise what they can't really fulfill. But one thing you should never do, and people do this with good intentions, is to try to minimize the suffering or to identify with the suffering in a way that's not authentic. So you could try to minimize the suffering by saying something like, well, at least it's not that bad. And I read a book. Uh, by a Christian professor who teaches church history. It's called um, Everything Works Out for Good and Other Lies I've Loved, something like that. And she said, the worst thing you can do is say, it's really not so bad because she has stage four cancer. And she says, what can you say to me? Uh, you don't have stage five cancer. You know, it's really not so bad. Stage four is as bad as it gets. Or sometimes people with very good intentions would say to me, oh, I understand what you're going through because my 96-year-old grandfather had dementia before he died. Well, I'm sad about that. That's not good. And I'm sure there was a lot of suffering. But I'm losing a wife who is 35 years younger than that, who was literally a genius. She was in Mensa. She was in the International High IQ Society. So... Don't minimize the suffering by saying, well, at least it's not something far worse. And then don't try to equalize the situation by saying, I know exactly how you feel. Because you don't. In fact, there's a scripture that says that each heart 
knows its own bitterness and no one shares its joy. So there's a kind of ineluctable opacity to our experience. I can't completely enter into your consciousness and you can't completely enter into mine. So we have to respect that and pick up on the signs. And I think of Isaiah 50 verse four, where Christ is referred to, it's a messianic reference. And it says, the Lord has given me an instructed tongue that I might speak a word that sustains the weary. So when I'm interacting with people who are weary, I always ask the Lord to give me an instructed tongue that will bring encouragement or bring some hope, just bring life. And we have to choose our words carefully because when people are suffering terribly, we often don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. And some people will simply avoid the situation because it's hard. Is painful. They just pull away. And then other people will try to help, but they really have no idea what to say or what to do. So they may commit the kind of mistakes that I just said. But if you ask the Lord to give you an instructed tongue to sustain the weary, I think he will. And often an instructed tongue doesn't say anything. <laughs> you know, there's a proverb that says, uh, a wise man holds his peace, but a fool proclaims his folly. Simply being with someone in love who is suffering, having that presence, that ministry of presence is very profound. Right. So one thing I wonder, I was reading your book, I was just thinking about um, where is God in the midst of dementia? Um, it seemed like just kind of reading and thinking about this, it seems it can almost seem like it's you were almost very lonely at times, just wondering, um, just kind of like what's going on. Um, so when you think about like this question of where's God in the midst of this, like deep suffering, um, that was kind of going on here, like, how did you kind of go through that? Yeah. Well, certainly God was there. God is everywhere and he is working out his eternal plan one step at a time, one second at a time. But, I was able to free myself from trying to make too much sense of it. That may sound strange, but I certainly am convinced that Christianity is true and that suffering has meaning and the glory that will be revealed to God's people will far outweigh the suffering that we go through. And I also believe that God somehow uses suffering to mold us and shape us into that eternal destiny. But, you know, I don't try to figure out the details of that. In fact, I had some situations with Rebecca that were so painful and seemingly meaningless that it was difficult to even get through them. But I didn't burden myself with the requirement that I somehow find a compensating good for the terrible situation I was going through. Some situations you simply go through, you soldier on and you wait for relief and you await for the final salvation that is to come. So God is in the midst of us. Psalm 139 is very profound on that. And he is working out his plan according to his will, Ephesians 1, 11. And also there are a lot of things that we finite 
fallen humans cannot know. In fact, I just had an article published in the Christian Research Journal about that. It's called God and Our Ignorance. So you have passages like Deuteronomy 29, 29 that says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but he has revealed what we what we need to know and what we pass on to our children. And that is sometimes called God's secret counsels. He doesn't reveal a lot of what we would like to know, but he's revealed enough that we can have a knowledge of who he is and what his overall plan for history and eternity is. So we try to focus on what we do know. Jesus is Lord. Life has meaning. Nothing is wasted. And we can unburden our hearts completely to God in the midst of all that. So I, I want to transition a little bit now to like talking about um, maybe the more like evidential or logical forms of like evil we've talked about. Um, just kind of like dealing with it like on a personal level, which is so, so important. Um, but you're a philosopher and you think about these big questions for a living. Uh, it's kind of what you do. And as you kind of like went through uh, your wife's um, dealing with dementia and kind of wondering, like, there's always the question of why God would God allow evil. So how have your views kind of been impacted and shaped and kind of where are you with like would God allow things such as dementia uh, to exist? Right. Well, let me start with a little story. Rebecca and I, until she got too sick, would really enjoy going to an olive garden close to our house. And we were driving there. And she was lamenting her fate. It was very painful for her. She knew what was happening to her. She knew how brilliant she had been. Mm -hmm. And I said, Becky, I know this is horrible, but one day we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth and all this will just seem like a bad dream. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and said, but is it really true? Mm -hmm. And Rebecca had accepted Christ before she could remember. She couldn't remember not trusting Jesus. She knew when she was baptized, but she had always been a Christian and she had thought hard about her faith. But dementia does some pretty terrible things to your mind and to your spirit. And I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? And she said, yes. And I said, do you remember that big apologetics book that you edited? She said, yes. I said, you believed those arguments. You know, you knew that Christianity is true. And I said, I assure you that Christianity is true and what I said is true. So, and she said, yes. Now she had struggles after that, certainly. That didn't put an end to all of her questions, problems, but it did encourage her. And that shows at least two things. One, in a way, I was almost believing for her. It was almost vicarious. You know, I, that's why I said it. I wasn't saying it to try to be cocky or proud. I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? Yes. Well, let me tell you, you agreed with this big book I wrote defending Christianity as true, reasonable, and pertinent to the whole of life. So I was helping her believe by my own belief. And both of us had worked hard on our worldviews. We were never people that trusted in blind faith or just mere experience or Holy Spirit goosebumps, we had really worked through our faith. And it also shows that, or something I want to bring to bear on this, is that uh, God has a stronger grip on us than we have on him. Mm 
And thank God for that. So when God sees one of his children struggling with doubt or anger, uh, he sees us through the lens of the cross, if you will. He sees us as redeemed and forgiven creatures. And he knows that our struggles on this earth can be very depleting and very difficult for us. And so God's commitment to Rebecca and to me was solid. And he could deal with our anger or our struggles or difficulties. But through that, uh, our apologetic background was significant in how we dealt with suffering. Because we had both, especially me, because I'm a professional philosopher, but we had really worked through the issue of the problem of evil. And I've looked at all the other major worldviews, atheism, Islam, Buddhism, and they don't really answer the, the question of evil. Christianity does. It says that humans and the world were originally good. We fell into sin. God continued to pursue us. That eventuated in the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Life has meaning, purpose, and value. And suffering has been addressed through the suffering of God himself in Christ. And there's a better world coming. And Rebecca and I had good reasons to believe all of those things. We had thought them through. So our apologetic background was very significant for how we dealt with the suffering. But even with a very strong apologetic background, the suffering was still real. It didn't go away, but it was shaped by our convictions and what God had shown us over many years of following him. Uh, some skeptics, like uh, I think it was J.L. Mackey, who was famous for putting it together in like the 50s or 60s, would argue that like a, an omnipotent God, a God that's all-powerful, um, an omnibenevolent God, the God that's all-loving, is doesn't exist because of like evil in the world, that it's logically impossible that you could have like an all-powerful and all-loving being and evil at the same time. Um, so kind of how would you think about like the logical problem of evil saying that like something like dementia is just incompatible with an all-powerful, all-loving God? Well, it really isn't because all you need to add is a proposition that says for any evil God allows, God has a morally significant reason for allowing that evil. So my basic approach to the problem of evil is called the greater good approach or the greater good defense, that given that we have solid evidence for the existence of God through cosmological design, moral arguments, also the ontological argument, we have a rational foundation for believing in theism. And then you consider the evidence for the reliability of scripture, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. And when you add all that together, even though evil is a vexing problem and extremely difficult, we have resources with which to deal with the problem of evil. So many evils are what I would call inexplicable, but that doesn't mean that they are meaningless because we uh, have good rational support that the God of the Bible is the true God and that God doesn't waste anything and that given his infinite knowledge and wisdom and power, he will not 
allow anything to be finally meaningless or without purpose, although much of that escapes us. But that makes sense because we have a very limited vantage point as contingent finite beings. We are limited in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our agency, and so on. And God is not. So the way you articulated it from J.L. Mackey was actually pretty definitively refuted by Alvin Plantinga a long time ago, roughly in the way that I said. But one way that I like to deal with it is let's look at the major worldviews, theism, atheism, pantheism, um, maybe it add in skepticism, and say, well, which worldview best explains the reality of evil and can give meaning to suffering and hope based on knowledge? And obviously I can't give you that whole argument here, although I spend really the whole book, Christian Apologetics, uh, defending Christian theism, and then I believe it's the very last chapter of the book uh, is on the problem of evil. So I say, given all the arguments we've given for a creator, designer, lawgiver, reliability of scripture, deity, resurrection, crucifixion of Jesus, now given all that, how do we make sense of evil? And we don't just say, well, it's a terrible problem. I guess there's no answer to it. So all that other evidence just gets flushed down the toilet. You know, that's not true. So you say, well, if evil is objectively real, does it make sense on atheism? Is there any hope in atheism to deal with evil or have the courage to fight it? No. Pantheism says that everything is divine. Everything is one. So you don't even have a clear distinction between good and evil. You don't have good winning out over evil because the god of pantheism is an impersonal substance or principle or force or something so all things considered christianity has the best answer to the problem of evil but i don't say that in any kind of a flippant or simplistic way because the problem of evil i think is the toughest problem for Christianity, but it is a problem for every worldview. And to address evil, you have to marshal the resources of your worldview to try to make sense of it. And that's where I think Christianity not only intellectually answers the question better than any of its rivals, but it also gives us the existential resource of suffering well after the pattern of Jesus. And that's what I talked about earlier. Yeah, that's great. Um, one last question here, and then I saw one line. If there's any other questions, we'll open it up for a few minutes. Um, but I'd agree with you that a lot of skeptics have moved away from kind of like a logical problem of evil like Mackie does. Um, but there's still kind of like an evidential problem or maybe the gratuitous suffering where it just seems like there's these instances of suffering where um, maybe there just seems like there's no meaning coming out of it. You talked about that a little bit in your own journey. Um, and it just seems like with this suffering, like it's just, it would be expected under like atheism that if there was no God, but if there was a loving God, we wouldn't expect to have um, these moments of where it seems like there really is evil uh, with no purpose. So it'd just be more likely that God does not exist according to more evidential arguments. So a little bit different, but a little bit similar at the same time. So how would you kind of respond to like an evidential problem of evil? Well, again, I would emphasize the total argument mm. for Christianity yeah. and gosh, the cosmological arguments defeat atheism. And there are at least three major cosmological arguments. I think you can find 
successful versions of all three, the Kalam, the Principle of Sufficient Reason, and the Thomistic. So if any of those three work, atheism is dead in the water. So I think the issue really, and you've got design arguments, moral arguments, is uh, given the existence of God and given the existence of evil, how do we make sense of this? Now, one problem with atheism is it can't even give us the categories for evil because on an atheist worldview, the universe is all that exists. So it has no intrinsic meaning, purpose, or value, and there's no lawgiver. So even generating the idea of evil, something that ought not be, something that's cruel, is either difficult or extremely impossible on an atheistic worldview. Whereas on a Christian worldview, we understand evil as that which contradicts the moral will of God or that which gratuitously hurts other people and so on. Uh, breaking the Ten Commandments, if you want to put it in terms of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So, yes, the evidential problem of evil is serious, but we have the resources within the overall Christian apologetic to deal with it. And I'll go back to that distinction I made uh, between gratuitous evil or meaningless evil and inscrutable evil. So I may not know why, for example, that Becky had some very severe problems with her teeth uh, not long before she died. And I remember one visit to the dentist that just seemed utterly futile and meaningless because she didn't quite understand what was going on. The procedure hurt her a little bit. And I thought, Lord, what possible reason for this? She's only going to live another year or two. Why did she have to go through this? And I chalked it up to being inscrutable for me, but scrutable for God. So within that framework of knowledge I have from apologetics, there'll be pockets of inscrutability, but they're not so big or so systematic that they collapse the whole system. Mm. They don't. Yeah, that's great. Um, I saw a couple of live questions here, so we'll open it up here for a little bit for questions or super chats. Um, from Vince, um, did the fact that God not removed from human suffering, um, referring to the incarnation, give you and your wife some comfort um, and reassurement? Yes, it definitely did. And we realized that no matter how painful and sometimes seemingly unbearable the suffering can be, that Christ suffered far worse than we ever have or will and that he rose from the dead and his resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead of his followers so i would often encourage becky by reading passages from revelation 21 and 22 about the new heavens and the new earth no tears no pain or i would read to her from first corinthians 15 about uh, the resurrection body and so on and her body betrayed her, her brain betrayed her. But I would tell her this is not forever, that you will get back everything and more. And it's not just wishful thinking. We have good reason to put our hope in Christ. So certainly, uh, I think that profound suffering by the Christian can lead us to appreciate uh, the redemptive suffering of Jesus even more than we might have otherwise. Mm, yeah, 
a super chat here from City Fredo said, right, thank you so much for your support. Really appreciate it. Um, and he says, is God a uh, utilitarian? Um, if God has sufficient reason, um, how do you prove this or figure out um, when or what that reason would be rather than deciding, oh, that's good. Thank God. So I think he's kind of talking about like, how can we just figure out like what God's reason would be for allowing um, particular evils? Yeah, I'm not saying God is a utilitarian. The greater good defense says that for any evil God allows, God has a sufficient reason to allow that evil and to bring about a greater good than would have been possible without that evil. So that's really not utilitarianism. That's uh, what you might call uh, God's instrumentality of using evil for good. And my favorite passage on this is Genesis 50, verse 20, where uh, Joseph is reflecting on how his brothers had betrayed him. And Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's what a being with all power and all wisdom and all knowledge can do. Now, I can see some good that came out of my wife's suffering, some uh character development in myself, and I'm grateful to God for that. But I'm not trying to set up a ledger. You know, Becky had this much suffering, but wow, we had this much good and it compensated for it. I don't see the whole picture, so I don't do that. My philosophy was to try to find and smelt as much meaning out of the suffering as I possibly could. So if you're in a situation where you or someone else is profoundly suffering, you can still respond lovingly and find meaning in the midst of it. And in my book, I speak of when I would visit Becky in the psychiatric unit, she had to spend five weeks there to be diagnosed with her problem. And a psychiatric ward is one of the saddest and strangest places you can be. And I didn't know much about them before my wife was there for all those weeks. And it took me a while to adjust. I really got angry several times. I didn't understand things. I talk about that in the book. But after a while, before I would go in, I would ask God to help me be a loving presence in the midst of all this suffering. First for my wife and, and then for the other people who were there. And there's always something loving and caring that you can do even in the worst possible situation and by doing that and by knowing that god is with you you find meaning you don't find a solution to the problem but you find meaning and that's what we all need is meaning that's great um thank you so much for your answer um Ben just says, I bought the book and have read it, highly recommend it. And I would say the same. It's a great book. So thank you for putting it together. Um, we do have one more question, I believe. Uh, it's also a super chat from C. Fredo. It says, um, do you fall in love every day or forgotten? I don't know exactly what he's asking here. Um, I don't know if you have any ideas. I'm not sure, but I mean, I can say something about that. Go for um, it. I love for Rebecca remains. She is with the Lord and all of her problems are behind her. And I thank God for all the good that she has done in my life, but uh, she's on the other side and I'm here and I've remarried and I dearly love my new wife, Kathleen. So uh, I love Becky and I love Kathleen and 
God loves me and there's lots of love to go around. <laughs> That's the best way I could answer that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think he's saying in regard to like dementia. So I don't know. I think he's talking about your journey and I think he kind of um, summed that up pretty well. So. Oh, okay. Well, I could, yeah, let me respond to that. Yeah, go for it. Um, one, one difficulty with spouses that have a, a spouse with dementia is that the person changes so much. So much of your relationship on one level is taken away. But on another level, Becky was still Becky. I was still me. We we're both part of the body of Christ, both loved by God through Christ. And he guided us. But uh, when we took our wedding vows, we took them very seriously. And we took the traditional wedding vows, which says, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. So this is sickness, dementia. So often I would go back to those vows and say, it doesn't matter how difficult this is. Uh, I made a vow before God to take care of my wife. And so that that is the final value. That's the final point to all of this. Uh, I also had some very good help from a counselor who was telling me that while you still are married to your wife and you love your wife, a lot of what marriage really is has been taken away. And that's part of the grieving process. He said, you're really in a marathon. You're not in a hundred yard dash. This is a long, slow loss. Mm -hmm. And he was very helpful to me in that process. So maybe that's a better answer to the question. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Um, thank you. Um, one more question here. Just going BS, which is, um, what do you think of death with dignity laws like euthanasia? Yeah, I don't support them. Um, we are God's creatures, and we're told not to murder. And the role of a physician is to help and to try to heal, or to try to provide. Uh, end of life care. So sadly, where I live in Colorado, uh, Colorado recently passed a law that allows physicians to administer lethal doses to people that have terminal illnesses. And they built in a lot of provisions to try to protect people from doing that unwisely, but I simply rule it out. I rule out homicide and I rule out suicide. So the issue is really palliative care, uh, but we don't want to hasten anyone's death because people are made in the image and likeness of God. We are not to murder. We are to care and not to kill. And when I teach Christian ethics, I could go into a lot more detail, but I think the trend in having laws supportive of euthanasia, or what's called doctor-assisted uh, doctor suicide, are very bad trends, very anti-life. And uh, I feel terribly for people who are suffering from terminal illnesses and those who care for them. But the answer is not to break God's law. I think we need to learn how to suffer well and find meaning in the midst of suffering and not hasten death because that is God's prerogative. Awesome. Um, one more question. There's always one question. But uh, Lindsay Metamore says, "How do you? How's the second edition of the book coming along?" Lindsay, 
<laughs> the person who asked this question is one of my students, one of my favorite students. Yes, the second edition, I finished the work on all the chapters, the previous chapters and seven new chapters about a month ago. So now it's all in the hands of the editor and we'll see what they say. It would be a lot longer. So I might have to negotiate a little bit with the editor about how long can we make this book? Because the first edition was 752 pages and I think I've added about 200 pages. Uh, we'll see how that all works out. I already call it the brick. So uh, yeah, thank you Lindsay. Thomas Aquinas can write like 5,000 pages. I think you can write a thousand. So. <laughs> The problem is I'm not Thomas Aquinas, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, well, Dr. Grutice, thank you so much, Grutice. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Um, I thank you so much for just your honesty um, and just kind of sharing your journey. And I'd highly encourage everyone um, to read the book if you haven't already. It's linked down below. But is there any kind of like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap things up here? Well, I would say that we should learn how to suffer well when we need to. We don't seek out gratuitous suffering. That would be unhealthy. That's a psychological disorder. But a fallen world will present us with opportunities to suffer. And we can suffer well by following Christ, or we can suffer poorly by medicating ourselves or by escaping responsibility or any number of ways. And we should embrace the Lord through all the seasons of life seasons of plenty and seasons of suffering but uh, don't view suffering as meaningless it's painful obviously by definition it brings everything into question but as a follower of the one who was crucified and resurrected we can find the meaning and the strength to get through it so don't give up rely on christ well, Dr. Grudice, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd appreciate it so much. Um, I encourage everyone, once again, you can get the book down below. really appreciate that. And if you're new to Hearing Apologetics, uh, feel free to subscribe. I appreciate your guys' support. Um, leave a like or a review wherever you're listening. Um, and if you enjoyed the show, you can support us on patreon.com. Getting really close to our funding goal, so that's exciting. So if you can chip in a couple of dollars a month, that helps. But Dr. Grudice, thank you, Grudice. Tice, I can't pronounce your last name. I'm so sorry. Um, thank you so much for joining me once again. You're today. welcome. Yeah, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, yes, sir. Um, I hope everyone has a good day. Jerry, Lindsay, Susan, um, everyone who tuned in, and God bless.